He was the face of the New York Yankees and the most admired player in baseball. The captain tells the story of Derek Jeter's life and Hall of Fame career. Catch episode three on Thursday, July 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and streaming on ESPN+. ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Moxie Bets. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Katie Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Bets. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about... Well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Catherine Bertine, and my dilemma is I can't believe we still have to fight so hard for common sense. I mean, what's with the fact that... uh, Women's sports, like cycling and others, is still so behind the times. I mean, we, we got to fix this stuff. You are preaching to the choir, girl. I wish there was an easy fix, you know, uh, between the hard data that we now have that proves that brands and networks are in, and investors are missing out on major opportunities by ignoring or, or underserving or underinvesting in women's sports. Plus, what we've always had, the more subjective but similarly clear progress that's visible in fan behaviors across social media, streaming, linear TV, in stadiums, in conversations, etc. You know, it's, it's more and more frustrating to hear antiquated takes about female athletes and women's sports, especially from the people that, that run the leagues or foundations or federations or who have outsized power on the growth of the sport. Um, but fortunately, I would say the noise is getting louder. Uh, It's getting louder from regular folks on social media as well as journalists. And the kinds of leaders who still spout misogynist excuses now get shamed and embarrassed and sometimes even removed from their positions. So we know that change is happening. Um, We just have to stay loud. Just have to stay um, unforgiving in our demands. We have to look right at all the old dinosaurs that are claiming that women aren't strong enough, fast enough, motivated enough, powerful enough, popular enough, interesting enough, talented enough, and tell them to evolve or die, that their ideas are no longer right, were never right, are not okay. And all the Bertines and Wambachs and Rapinos and Renee Montgomery's and and, uh, and Laisha Clarendon's and Naomi Osaka's and Coco Goff's and Billie Jean King's, all of the people that have been fighting and are continuing to fight need to keep their foot on the gas uh, because it's taking way too long but we will get there and I alternate between the optimism I just shared and and the deep depression and frustration uh, that you laid out so uh, today I'm in a fighting mood because I just spent my time talking to you and how could I feel any other way after our conversation that's what she said Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, this week's episode. It's a great one. You know what? It reminded me of one of my joys in doing this podcast, which is to learn about something um, and sometimes something I've previously not been all that into um, and talking to someone passionate about it, hearing about it in the hands of a great storyteller. Uh, can teach me how fascinating it can be. And that is the case with uh, cycling, the fight for a a women's Tour de France, and all the things uh, that went on and continued to make up the life of Catherine Bertine. She's a former ESPN columnist 
former ESPNW editor. Uh, she was around in the early days of W, about a decade ago. So we knew each other way back when. And I followed along on, on social media ever since as she's fought for equality in cycling. Uh, but this book really opened my eyes to the incredible work that she's done and just what a toll the fight for equality has taken on her in her life. Um, divorce, a traumatic brain injury, deaths, suicidal ideologies, uh, losses, wins, disappointments, joys. I mean, this book, Stand, is a damn ride. And I mean that not as a cycling pun. Um, this is, for instance, how it starts, uh, laying out the ups and downs we're about to take with her. The most pivotal day of my journey in activism went by way too fast, no matter how hard I tried to slow the incalculable speed of memory. July 27, 2014. Flashes of color, noise, and blurry people as crowds pressed against the cycling barriers lining the Champs-Élysées. Wind in my ears and the whir of gears as we encircled L'Arc de Triomphe. Pounding heart and burning lungs in sync with the peloton of women around me. We were racing at the Tour de France, a race that once banned women. For the last five years, I'd taken up arms alongside fellow athletes and supporters around the world against the discriminatory regulations and the bureaucratic dinosaurs that barred us from the roadways of France while men competed in the most iconic cycling race in the world. Finally, on this momentous day, here we were, 125 female professional cyclists in the heart of Paris, racing down the cobblestones of the Champs-Élysées. I reveled in every moment of our prodigious, triumphant day. Inside, though, I was cracking. A photographer snapped a picture of me on my bike that day, appearing invincible, victorious, joyful, and as though I had my shit together as I rolled toward the start line of the inaugural La Course by Tour de France. All smiles, all strength, all confidence, all lies. That's how she sort of just hints to us about what's to come. And she describes herself in the book, Catherine does, as untrammeled. She says in the book, it's the censored version of unforthable, which I'm so glad she knows that word. It's my personal mantra. It actually sits in the bio of all my social media handles. Um, and I first heard it when Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam pointed out a woman at a Wrigley show in the front row wearing a shirt that said unforthable. And from that day on, it's been my word. And untrammeled is a great censored version. Uh, Catherine even ties the word back to uh, roots of her learning about it in cycling. She has a quote uh, from Susan B. Anthony back in the mid-1890s when feminists and suffragettes embraced the bicycle's transformative powers. She said, quote, Let me tell you what I think of bicycling. It has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by in a wheel. The picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. So good. Uh, I mean, untrammeled is absolutely such a great censored version of unquithable. Um, and Catherine is untrammeled. She's beyond impressive. And her book is an incredible read, whether you care about cycling or not in the slightest. I mean, if you look at the patterns that she describes and the fights that she has across the course of her fight for the Tour de France and other equality across the sport, it sounds so much like other inequalities across other spaces. Here, just listen to this. She's describing in the book about what she calls the pentagram of blame, the sort of chicken and egg cycles of inequality and then people pointing fingers at others as to why it happens. She says of this pentagram of blame, in the upper left-hand corner sits the governing body of cycling, the UCI. Since the very top of the sport doesn't value women equally, they get the ball rolling by not offering women the same distances, base salaries, age medians, etc., and decreeing women are simply not capable of racing the same events as the men. 
thus shifting the blame of inequity directly to the women. Female pro-cyclists react. Let us into the event so we can prove the UCI wrong, launching the trajectory over to the race directors. But directors like medalist sports, who can't see women as a viable way to double their ROI, then lament, we just don't have the sponsorship dollars to add a women's field, hurling the blame over to prospective sponsors, most of whom are not aware that there's a women's pro cycling field, claiming, wait, women race bikes too? How come we don't see them in the media? Lobbing the blame over to multimedia. Media then rightfully slams the ball back to the UCI. How can we show the women if they're not allowed to race the same events as the men, you big dummies? Exactly. To break the cycle of inequity, change must come from the top down. I mean, that could be applied to so many different spaces. And because of Catherine's efforts, along with an alliance of cycling and PR superstars, for the first time in a very long time, there are two Pelotons in Paris racing the Tour de France right now. From 2014 to 2021, in response to the petition and the fight from Catherine's Superstar Alliance, La Course by La Tour de France was either held as a one or two day race. But this year, finally, after all those years of fighting, the Tour de France Femme avec Zwift runs for eight days. It goes across Northeast France, 144 women from 24 teams racing over 640 total miles, four flat stages, two hilly ones, two mountain stages. It's not equality yet in terms of total stages and prize money, but it's getting closer and closer. And the women started on Sunday. So if you're listening to this right when it comes out, just a couple days ago, you can watch all the action this week on Peacock and CNBC. And you can learn about how this came to be over years and years of fighting uh, right now in my conversation with the amazing Catherine Bertine. I'm so excited to be talking to a former colleague of mine from the very early days of ESPNW. And uh, one of the things I'll say about reading this book, which is one of many written by Catherine Bertine, is your incredible memory and recollection. And it actually, in the moments that you reflect on your time in the early days of ESPNW, it sort of brought me back and reminded me how so much of it is a blur. And I'm trying to figure out if I am successful in life because of my ability to just keep it moving, or if I would be more successful if I could grab onto and hold on to more specific memories of things like those those days and times. But we'll get to ESPNW in a bit. I want to start with two sort of broad questions for you. Where do you think you found or learned the confidence to do what you've done, which is to say, write books, race as a professional cyclist post 30 years old, a, a secondary sports career that you picked up later in life, mm -hmm. create a documentary, send emails to the highest levels of your sport asking for change. Where do you think that confidence comes from? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, maybe part of that answer would be insanity. But I think honestly, <laughs> for me, it was really um, when when somebody would say no, or that, you know, no, that's not a good idea, or no, you can't do this. For some reason, that really fired me up to, you know, put on the, oh, yeah, hat, you know, like, I think I can. I don't know where that comes from. But I, I definitely got a charge out of um, people or ideas that would stand in my way or block me from trying to do something. Mm. And I, I don't know where it comes from. Um, but, you know, was I born with it? Maybe. Uh, or was it just something that over time, you know, um, it, it really bugged me when when people yeah. took that line of like, eh, that's not possible. That's you're not able, you know, that just kind of stoked the fires to to try to flip the switch, you know? 
which leads me to my second half of the question, which I think you just walked me up to, which is why do you think at the same time as that confidence that pushes you to do all those things, you have these underlying feelings of unworthiness that when people tell you you're not enough or you're a no one or you can't do that, it actually sticks instead of you saying, who are you to say that? Mm, that's, I, that is one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked because it is baffling to me as well. And the, the best that I can come up with is that, um, you know, I think that all of us humans are kind of a scale of balance in some way. And I think that I think that's it for me. I think that, you know, I do have this this confidence in standing up and trying to fight for change, you know, um, and yet on the flip side of that, like, what's my Achilles heel or what's the other side of that balance? And for me, I think it is that sense of um, worth or worthiness. And I'm extremely sensitive. So it's weird for me that I can be so strong on this one hand and then so very sensitive on this other side. And um, I, you know, I wonder kind of if, if all of us have something like that in our checks and balances, because I think we know plenty of people who are awesome and successful and powerful. But then when we peel back the layers of their lives, there's some usually some serious trauma or doubt that's in there too. So I feel like I'm not alone. But as for where does it come from, I don't know. And if you have any idea and you can find that answer, please let me know because I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that sort of sets the stage for the book, which we'll get back to um, because it is sort of this alternating um, journey for you between I'm going to do these things, you can't stop me, and I'm not worthy of any of these things that I put in front of myself. Um, mm. But I want to briefly, because there's so much in the book I want to get to, but briefly tell folks about... Um, you know, where you grew up and your first, your first foray into trying to make it big with uh, figure skating. Oh, the skating days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, tiny town called Bronxville, New York. And five minutes away from my house in Yonkers, New York, there's a skating rink, Murray's Skating Center. And so as a little kid, I just gravitated towards skating because that's what all kids from Bronxville school did on three to five, from three to 5 p.m. on Mondays. Like, <laughs> so it was, you know, a long time ago, that was my first sport. And um, as I got into skating, I really realized that uh, I love this and maybe I can take this as high as I can possibly get. So, you know, by the time I was in my teenage years, I knew I wasn't going to be on the Olympic track. I didn't have enough triples um, in my repertoire. <laughs> and I definitely had enough crash landings, but I was still pretty, pretty good. And it was clear that I could make it to the professional level and join some of those shows, you know, which I did, like Ice Capades and Holiday on Ice and Hollywood on Ice. So I did about a year of professional skating. And then um, I kind of had enough of the show life um, because the show life was not as athletic as the competitive life was. And I was like, okay, I, I got to switch gears here. And I ended up going to grad school for journalism um, and creative writing out in Tucson, Arizona, the University of Arizona. And when I got out there, there was no ice. <laughs> so I had to find, you know, I had to find an, a new outlet for, um, for that athletic side of like, uh, you know, just wanting to compete, wanting to be active. And um, I had also been a rower in college. My dad was a rower and he got me into rowing. So I was a rower and a skater. 
And, um, you know, then I end up in the desert and there's neither ice nor water. And some of my <laughs> rowing friends said, hey, get a bike. Cycling is so, so comparable to the quadriceps and the core muscles that we use both in rowing and in skating. And I was like, oh, okay. So I got a bike. And that I had no idea at that time I was 23. And at first I got into triathlon because anybody, um, whether grad student or undergrad, anyone could join the Arizona TriCats team. So I joined that team <laughs> and short shortening the story, you know, after spending years in triathlon, it was clear to me that cycling was the, um, the strongest of the three disciplines of swimming, cycling and, and running. So I segued over to start bike racing. But Sarah, by this time, I was um, 31 when I first got on <laughs> a road bike, you know, to to try this craziness of uh, road cycling. And that was also at the juncture that ESPN came into my life, too. That was actually... Yeah, so your first work with ESPN was this awesome long-term storyline of trying to qualify for the Olympics. Yes. Um, and so you combined this newfound love of road cycling with this writing and journalism, and you were able to write for ESPN as you continued learning about what it was like to try to be a professional and then eventually to try to um, qualify for the Olympics. So that's sort of where we are early on in mm. this book, Stand. Uh, a memoir on activism, a manual for progress. What really happens when we stand on the front lines of change? You are um, full of doubt, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> even more so at the beginning of the book. You're mm -hmm. very low on money. You're working two jobs. Um, you're an adjunct professor. You're you're a waitress. Um, you are trying to figure out where you fit in this world of cycling, where you both recognize that you are not the top of the of the heap when it comes to winning world championships or qualifying for the Olympics, but you also have this unique voice that, that, that cuts through everything and has a real desire to make changes within the sport. So mm -hmm. how do you balance uh, the attention you're getting from ESPN for this attempt to, to qualify with, you know, recognizing um, your, your own limitations. So right. that's sort of where we begin. And at this point you fire off an email uh, to the powers that be about potentially adding uh, a women's tour de France, which had been in existence twice previously in its storied history, but for decades had been um, not an option. There was no option for women to race their own tour de France. So I want you to set the stage of racing around this time, uh, the mm -hmm. time of the book, the time at the beginning, um, because there were tremendous inequities across the space um, that you looked around and saw and thought, we can't let it be this way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, because when I was on the ESPN assignment, which really took me through 2008, right? And so I, you know, I started road cycling in 2007, then we're in 2008. And um, at this point, the assignment itself is wrapping up. But my love of cycling is like, full blast, like, oh, my God, this is so much more than a magazine assignment, I want to keep going. But what's interesting is that as I started road cycling, I saw all these crazy inequities that I'd never seen in any other sport that I played. You know, namely, women are not invited to all the races that men are invited to. Um, and then for the at the professional level, the women don't race the same distance that the men race. And they certainly don't earn the same prize purse that the men were earning. So that struck me as very odd. But of course, 
I was still on assignment with ESPN and the whole assignment was like, try to get to the Olympics. So I kind of filed these inequity facts away as, you know, in the must revisit files. <laughs> so during, you know, that time, I'm like, this is so weird because, you know, the sports that I played growing up, and I'm sure that you can understand and relate to this too. Like in skating, both boys and girls were allowed on the ice in rowing, both men and women were in the, the boathouse. They had access to the water, you know, and in triathlon, same thing. Actually, triathlon was probably one of the best. Women raced the same distances, the same courses, um, separate from men, but they're at the same race, you know, in their own category. So it, when I stepped into the cycling world, I was like, where, why are the women doing half of everything? And that's mm -hmm. even when we're invited to the races. Makes no sense. So to your point, there's all sorts of things. Fewer opportunities, fewer Olympic spots, no Tour de France amongst other major events that didn't invite women. Low pay and no base pay, even for professionals mm -hmm. across the sport. Um, there, uh, this extremely strange age rule that was in existence for much of your time as a professional cyclist, where the average age of a women's team needed to be excessively low, considering what we know about endurance sports for women and they're actually improving performance as they get later in life that rule did not exist for men so why in the world it existed for women is is an, another one of those traditions and it's always been that way that finally thankfully did go away mm -hmm. um and uh, this was also on the backdrop of a ton of attention for Lance Armstrong, but also the fallout from Lance finally admitting uh, to cheating and all the people he'd thrown under the bus along the way. So there's a there's an eye on on cycling in a lot of ways that could be useful to try to spin uh, th these inequities. But there's also a very antiquated uh, kind of uh, core to it that included the idea that professional racers were really not allowed to and even sometimes in their contracts were forbidden from speaking about the inequalities publicly yes correct yeah it was a, you know that's not just, wild to me i know i know i was about to say it was a trilogy of things but it wasn't it was like a quintilogy a you know uh dectilogy i'm making up words now but it was amazing how many factors were mm -hmm. stacked against the women in terms of just um common sense progress Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, I'd like a word. What is your favorite word? Quagmire. Oh, quagmire. I love this one. It's fun to say, and it's also one of those words that started out to mean something quite literal and then expanded to a larger idea. So 1570s, it meant soft, wet, boggy land, a marsh. 
And then the extended sense of a difficult situation or an inescapably bad position isn't recorded until 1766. Uh, but it wasn't super common for most of the 19th century and then was revived, uh, popularized uh, by a book titled The Making of a Quagmire by David Halberstam in 1965. So now whenever I hear someone say, you know, I'm in a bit of a quagmire, I'm going to get to picture them literally sinking into a bog, which is fun. Speaking of great words. You got learn today. The word of the week is? Ah, uh, yes. The word of the week is broom wagon. How fun is this word? Okay, so a broom wagon, sometimes also known as a sag wagon, is a vehicle that follows in a cycling road race and it quote unquote sweeps up the stragglers who will be unable to make it to the finish within the time permitted. They're able to tell at a certain point in the race that the people in the very back are not moving fast enough and have not yet moved fast enough to get to the end in the time allotted. So broom wagon is a translation of the French voiture belay and was first seen at the 1910 Tour de France. And the broom wagon indeed once carried a broom above the driver's cab, um, except for the years when it was sponsored by a vacuum cleaner company, where I'm, I'm guessing, but I haven't found out yet, if they had a vacuum cleaner out the side window. Either way. Uh, it exists in road cycling races, and often there are real brooms affixed to the broom wagon, and it sometimes is in other sports too, like marathon events. Um, so quick story time deep cut here. So for people who are my age or older, if you wanted to stay up late and keep watching TV after, say, like Saturday Night Live in the 90s, didn't have a million channels, didn't have any streaming services, so Showtime at the Apollo was basically it. And during amateur nights of the show, there was this guy named Howard Sims. He was called the Executioner, and he would comedically force these failing amateur acts off stage with a hook or a prop or a broom. So you would literally get the hook or get swept off the stage if you weren't performing well enough and the crowd wasn't into it. So this broom wagon is basically the executioner of cycling races. Uh, this is such a wonderful concept. Unless, of course, I guess you're in the back of the pack. Uh, okay, so in a sentence. As one member of her crew started to drag ass during the all-day music festival, Sarah wished for a broom wagon to scoop up the overserved individual and usher him to the safety of the hotel to save the group from the annoyances of a saturated barnacle for the remainder of the event. Yes, I can think of many occasions where a broom wagon would be helpful. That's what she said. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, I mentioned it was, you know, truly dated in terms of like some of the core people at, at the center of the sport and their feelings on things. There's a there's a quote in the book from a former Tour de France winner who turned into a commentator, Jacques Anquetil, who said, quote, cycling is much too difficult for a woman. They are not made for sport. I prefer to see a woman in short white skirt, not racing shorts. I'm sorry to see them suffer. On a bicycle, there's always a lot of suffering. Um, this was not <laughs> the 1930s, by the way. This was uh, this was fairly recently. Yep. And um, that sort of through line of not only women should not be made to suffer. It's uncomfortable for us to see attractive beings being unattractive, but also the pseudoscience of like our uteruses are going to fall off if we do sports and things like that um, sort of pervaded much later than you would expect, including amongst people who were decision makers. So you've got this sport where, as you mentioned in the book, there's tremendous history of women competing and cycling hundred plus years ago and then like many other sports steps taken back and i wonder if you could guess at why um there seem to there seems to be that through line in a lot of sports where there's women's professional 
fill in the blank for years and then something gets in the way and we find ourselves now in this in this generation fighting for things that had already been fought for and achieved and then taken away yeah it's an interesting conundrum and i liken that to you know what i call like the loopholes of tradition and i think one of the things that works against us unfortunately these days is we assume that there is so much progress because we'll say oh it's 2022 everything's equal we're all equal you know and people don't realize that that's actually not the case. You know, they don't pull back the the layers of the onion to really look at the core and say, whoa, wait, there's a lot of inequity that's still happening in, in a lot of sports, right? And in a lot of society. So for that was the biggest thing for me was that when I started talking to people like, hey, did you know that there are no women at the Tour de France? Their first response was usually like, wait, what do you mean? There must be. I mean, it's at that point, it's 20 2012. Of course there are women, right? But no. So that's part of that loophole conundrum. And it, this happens most often with sports that have been around for a long, long time. And, mm. you know, UCI, which is the governing body of cycling, um, has been around since 1900, which I really appreciate because then it's easy for me to say, oh, it's been around 122 years. Like easy math really helps <laughs> right. me. <laughs> so I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, that's been the problem. And, you know, on a side note here, this UCI, this governing body that's been around for 122 years, has had 11 presidents in that entire span. Wow, and they're all white European males, usually middle aged. Say how many people of color? How many women? Yeah, oh, right, exactly. No, it's two of the eleven presidents from eight different countries yeah. over 122 years. Zero women. Yeah. There is not a speck of any sort of color in. These are all European white men. So yes, it's so behind the times, you know. So it's yeah. been. So this is who yeah. you're dealing with this is as you're trying to enact change. <laughs> yeah, as we're change, trying to and you're not thinking small. You're not contacting local races. You're going to the top, to the UCI. You're going to the Tour de France uh, and hoping to enact yeah. change in other things like the lack of base salary for pros and things like that. So you're doing this from within. In your 30s, you are mm -hmm. trying to continue competing as a professional racer, trying to continue making race teams. And early on in this journey, you're trying to still um, make the Olympics. If you could briefly just explain, you were you were racing throughout your career for Nevis and St. Kitts. How did you get that connection? And what did that afford you in terms of your ability to keep racing throughout this the timeline of the book? Yes. Okay. First, I love that you said Nevis and St. Kitts, as opposed to St. Kitts and Nevis, because Nevis is always given the back seat. So thank you for saying Nevis <laughs> and St. Kitts. That's the smaller of the two islands that is one country. And I know they are cheering right now listening to this. So um, the short story to that question is that during my time with ESPN on that original two-year assignment, um, when I didn't make the U.S. team, because I'd only been on a bicycle for you know six months at that point, the editors in jest said, oh, we'll try to find another country to race for. And it was their move of trying to kind of set me up to fail. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. Um, you don't just barge into a country and say, here I am. Look at me, you know, so there was no way I was going <laughs> to do that until I remembered the inequity factors that were happening in in, well, all of cycling. And so I did a quick dive into what countries do not have a women's federation. 
And would it be possible that I could help them build a women's federation so that when my day is done in cycling, they actually have a pipeline set in place so that women can equally share in this sport that men do. And that became a new kind of rallying cry for me. So I reached out to a bunch of countries. I'm like, let me please help you build a women's federation. And by the way, what's very important to know here too, is that you don't just get to go to the Olympics and a sport like cycling, you would have to place in the top 100 you know, worldwide. So this was a two-part assignment. One, could I even find citizenship? And then if I did, would there be enough time to go and qualify, right? So um, that was two two prongs to that. And um, long story very shortened is that I did eventually gain citizenship with St. Kitts and Nevis uh, to help them build this federation. And they would give me the opportunity to try to qualify for the games, but that wasn't a sure thing. Um, and so I was excited. So I got the citizenship. And at that point, there were only six weeks left to try to get to the races to qualify for the Olympics. That's when things really got interesting, because that's when I noticed another huge inequity in that um, not all countries are given access to the qualifying races for the Olympics. And that's on UCI, again, being a gazillion years old, they didn't update their infrastructure to let smaller countries have access to these races. So I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, now it's not just affecting me, it's help- It's affecting these amazing athletes from smaller countries that can't either afford to get to these races or can't afford to, or can't have an opportunity to get their foot in the door to these races. So it's like, okay, this shit's got to change. This is not okay. And um, so when I did not qualify for the 2008 games, that's really what kicked it into gear for me to be like, hey, it's not just that I didn't qualify, it's that the system is also very, very broken. How can we fix this? And I also made a promise that um, this was not some stunt show where, okay, I didn't I didn't qualify for the Olympics in 2008 with St. Kitts and Nevis. Therefore, I'm done. I'm going back to America to race. Um, I was like, no, if they give me this citizenship, I will proudly fly their flag throughout the duration of my professional career. And I did that for eight years. I always represented St. Kitts and Nevis. And um, I love that. And it did give you this fallback (laughs) throughout your career too, of like in between teams and in, in a, in order to get some of the points and standing and and times that you needed to continue proving to people that you belonged, you had the national competitions for, for, for the Caribbean and all those other things around the same time you um, are, you know, trying to figure out what's next for you. You write a story about the tragic shooting that happened right in your own backyard in Arizona mm-hmm. um, that involved Gabby Giffords and 18 others. Um, everybody, of course, remembers uh, Representative Gabby Giffords um, and her incredible recovery from being shot that day. Um, but there were lives lost, and one of them was a young girl. And you wrote about Christina Taylor Green, uh, and that story that you pitched ended up earning you a job back with ESPN. You had been um, not mm-hmm. renewed. They hadn't wanted to continue the series after you were done with the with the Olympic stuff. There were other pitches that you sent in that they were they passed on or didn't have the money for. They were going through a different time. And so you you come back around right in time for ESPNW to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not join the very first day. I think I was a, a couple months into the ESPNW, especially beta version that had started way back when. Um, but you write about 
how it not only afforded you the opportunity to tell incredible stories of amazing women and female athletes around the world that you found, and especially shine a light on some of the lesser known sports because of your own uh, affection for cycling and the, the the niche sports that don't get as much coverage, but that you also struggled at times with um, some of the people you worked with not being great uh, allies, not lifting up other women. Um, and that actually contributed to some of your own struggles on the racing side when ESPNW paired with Cola Vida to make a team. And a lot of your pitches fell on deaf ears. A lot of what you wanted to accomplish was stopped, not by men that seemed to be in the way, but but sometimes women. Mm-hmm. That, that was one of the toughest things, I think. And Sarah, you and I might have been on the, the call that, you know, really affected me the most when one of um, our, our boss, well, our boss, our higher up at the time for ESPNW, you know, when I pitched the idea of, listen, let's make a documentary on women's pro cycling. Um, it's fascinating stuff, what's happening behind the scenes, the inequity, but also really the incredible athletes that are part of this sport. Like there's some really good material here. And we can also be a game changer in helping affect change. You know, we're ESPN. Let's let's make this happen. And if you remember, well, I certainly remember, <laughs> but her response, you know, on our conference call was, um, cover your ears, Catherine, but does anyone even watch women's cycling? It was said mm. in that tone. It was very like, you know, I was like, well, no, the reason they don't watch women's cycling is because there's no way to watch it. There are no films right. on it. There's no coverage. There's no broadcast. But we are ESPN. We can we can shift that. And um, she passed. She's like, no, you know, let's write about nail polish at the gym, you know. So like it was a real gut punch to me to think like, it, this was a woman who didn't see the bigger picture of what this could be. And um, I think that also flipped the switch for me personally, too, to be like, you know what? No, like, just because you don't want to make this film, that's one thing. But I really, truly believe that this is something that needs to be made. And so it was around that time I was like, well, then I'm going to go and make this film, which <laughs> is quite a proclamation <laughs> for somebody who's yes. know, <laughs> never done that. And I that. love it. I love that. I mean, but it, but it ended up being this incredible journey because of that. So quickly to put a pin in the W stuff, mm. it was fascinating for me to read and be reminded of the early iterations and how different the landscape is, yes. even just 11 or so years later, that we truly were trying to figure out who are we serving, who mm. feels left out by Maine ESPN and what are they looking for? And we tried all sorts of things. It was healthy cooking to fuel your training. It was, um, like you said, the, the best gym equipment um, and training stuff. And so it was a combination of almost like women's health plus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sport plus coverage of storytelling. And we really had to like find our way through all of that to figure out what our voice was and what our intent was. And you were on for a lot of the sticky stuff. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot that reminded me of, I think at one point you wanted like a company wide email. And I remember being assigned a story that was like, Hey, could you just call up like Pat summit and Gino Oriama and whatever else? And just, uh, and just ask them about, um, whether or not there sh- we should pay college athletes. And I was like, um, well, so I don't even have an ESPN email. I just started here. I didn't even go to journalism school. I definitely got hired for something different than this, but I'll try. I don't know that they're going to respond and like just go on the record. So we were still figuring stuff out. Um, 
Yeah. So so this is the landscape. You you all at once you you lose ESPNW. You don't end up on this potential pro team you're looking for. Your literary agent drops you as things change at the literary agency after you'd already had some books with them. And mm -hmm. so this is a big pivot point. And you're like, instead of I'm going to, you know, give everything up and do something else in life, you, you decide I'll just do it myself. I'm going to make my own documentary. I'm going to join a different pro team. Um, and I love that you didn't qualify for the Olympics. And instead mm -hmm. of deciding that was the end of the thing it, at one point you kept saying this is the only way i'll get anything done is if i qualify for the olympics my name will be associated with greatness enough that i will be considered someone who can make change and then you don't make it and you say i'm not an olympian i'm an almostian someone who <laughs> almost made the olympics and that's easy to write on paper it's easy to say in hindsight but talk to me briefly about the process of putting everything into something knowing it's the only way and then being able to pivot and say, no, it's not the only way. The process of helping others or lifting up others is is a way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I, by that point, I had seen enough of both sides of the struggle. You know, there's the glorious moments when you have incredible racing um, that are memorable in their own way. And then there's the struggle side of stuff that just wasn't working. And for me, that was really where I felt most connected like, okay, there's a human element that's happening in this. And I think that's something that needs to be explored. And if we're affecting change, you know, for me, I always felt like, listen, these people who are running these giant companies like the Tour de France, etc. It's not a machine like there are humans there. And maybe on a human level, they can truly relate to to some of the struggle and maybe they'll be willing to affect change so it's weird i don't know how my mind works and why it does that way but i think instead of you know channeling the like oh i didn't make the olympics this sucks you know <laughs> side of it i i was more prone to being like what did i learn from this and how can it help others how could this potentially be used as a tool to make something better um so i don't know yeah. where that comes from but it for me it was the kind of thing where it's like Okay. And especially at that point too, that time that you just referenced, that was around, you know, um, 2013, 2012, 20, I guess 2012 ish. And I was like, ugh, nothing is going as planned, but how do we make that work to our advantage? Like, how do we write a new plan? You know, it's interesting throughout, there are these massive waves of either everything is the worst or things are looking up and it goes, <laughs> and it's such a good read in part because of that. And you're so good at teasing out little did I know that like there was a traumatic brain injury to come or a death or a divorce or like all these, you put these things out and then you're reading like, oh, here we go. This is it. Oh, this isn't it. This is just a broken arm. Okay. All right. And, you know, and, and you're waiting for the, the other shoe to drop and it, it's a very excellent way to read a book, but a mildly terrifying way to live a life. Um, <laughs> thankfully, you didn't know about all those things coming down the pike. But, um, yeah. you, you know, you talk about throughout the book, all the different ways that you embrace being space dust or the glue. Mm -hmm. And I love you saying being greatness and creating greatness are two different things, meaning I don't need to be the greatest cyclist to create great change in cycling. And I think sometimes for people that's really hard because the biggest names are going to get the most press and the, and those are the people you're going to hear about, even if they just take a photo in front of like 
a farm that some other person worked 20 years to save. And at the last minute, they came in and, and paid some money to help. And, and now they're the face of it. Um, it's very hard for us to reconcile that being great with with creating greatness. And I also think for you, it feels like there's a very natural, um, you are able to identify yourself within a larger group and a larger fight, but you have a little bit more difficulty fighting for yourself in the pursuit of just your own needs. Like for instance, yes. when you're on the Cola Vita cooking light team and um, there's a change in your team director who had been an ally and a hero to you, um, she ends up giving you the shaft basically she even potentially we're not sure still might have uh, uh told the massage therapist to cut up and scrape up your back with water buffalo horns and yeah. actually injure you um then you get to a a, a new team director where you think things are going to be better and you're dropped by that team because you didn't give enough press to his girlfriend in the doc <laughs> you're making i mean these are just the most absurd reasons to have your dreams derailed and i wonder why you feared fighting for yourself why not tell your teammates that the team director had taken you off the schedule which you found out later was illegal why not tell them that or 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 make a fuss about the unfairness of what was happening. Yeah, I think at that point, and much like we had referenced earlier, how we had contracts where basically we were supposed to be, you know, smiley and happy and just promote the good side of sport. And unfortunately, because of this antiquated director, you know, the whole idea, like if you said anything um, that was considered controversial, then the director could do two things. One, just simply not race you, you know, put other racers in your place, and then two, kick you off the team. So I think that for me was the, the, biggest, um, the biggest thing to, to have to acknowledge. And I also didn't want to get any of my teammates, you know, in trouble, so to speak. Like if I, if I brought a problem to the table, like, Hey, this director, she's being pretty effing awful to me right now. You know, that put my teammates potentially in a position to say, right. well, you know, and well, gosh, isn't that a through line in women's yeah. sports? The yes. idea, just be grateful for what you have. If you oh. rock the boat, you could lose everything. And it's so true throughout this book that the, um, that everything's very tenuous in the world of cycling, your place on a team, your chances of being put in a race, your health, your everything. And, and so I understand there is, there is that fear, but throughout, um, despite those concerns about, you know, your own well being or paying the rent or not having a car, or all the other things you're, you're dealing with, um, your through line is this larger goal. And that mm -hmm. kind of pushes you through all the hiccups along the way. And, you end up petitioning change.org with a really powerful group of women. And that's where you try to really bring attention to the need for a women's tour de France. And you had messaged the leaders and the higher ups for years to no response. I love mm -hmm. in the book, how you learn how to spell crickets, crickets in multiple languages, because the number <laughs> of different multiple uh, foreign people who have, who have, have, have given you the crickets. Um, but you, you, you bring all these people together, you get this big meeting, you, um, enact 
the change that you're looking for at this at, at, at one level. It's not the full tour de France, but you get them to agree to a one day women's race and to push towards the things you're looking for. And you're doing this while making this documentary half the road that ends up winning awards and moving around the world. And so all of this is happening at once. It's exhausting to read as you're flying around training, racing, editing, filming, um, fight, fighting the patriarchy. Um, and in the meantime, <laughs> you come home to your husband throughout and it's not in the book a lot because there's not a lot to write about. My husband and I would always, you know, hunker down and watch movies and relax. And that was so important to me was to have this home and this home base. Um, and I don't know if that's intentional because it does end up feeling like, is that why things didn't work out? Because you were doing 8 million things and you were traveling and your focus was on this activism or can you look back and, and do you still wonder, what exactly happened for him to all of a sudden one day say, I'm done, I'm out, I want a divorce. And you've never seen him since. Yeah, that's um, that's a loaded loaded question in many ways because it was um, it was so out of the blue and so unexpected. And I know that while you're reading, Stan, you know, you get a sense for how, like how many great points there are in terms of like, oh, it just felt like he was always supportive and always there. And I think what really happened in that, you know, that final, I would say six to eight months where everything was coming together and the documentary was being released. We finally gained access to women at the Tour de France. Um, you know, a book was coming out. I, I truly think that he struggled with the fact that, um, the success was happening. It was all coming around. Mm. And um, despite the fact that, you know, we all we also talked very openly about the fact that, um, you know, things like films and books, and even the Tour de France itself, it had a short shelf life of how that would be in the in the uh, public media, you know, it would be very kind of a quick, um, quick stint. And then it would settle back down and get to normal. But I think one of the things that was going on was that he happened to be very upset with his own um, life journey. And he was not right. happy in his place of work. He was not in a good place. And then he saw that all of this stuff was finally coming together for me. A lot of my friends have suggested that perhaps he was not okay with me being in the spotlight and with him being in a, a, a mm. kind of miserable place at that time. Um, and perhaps the easiest thing for him was to just go away and separate yeah. himself and the yeah the whole spouse as mirror thing i think is a, a big one mm -hmm. if you are looking at someone every day um pushed by ambition and passion and desire for the thing that they are setting out to do and your job is unfulfilling and unsatisfying um it's so much more difficult i think when the person that lives with you right across from you is is showing you an, an another alternative yes. and that can you know create resentment and all sorts of other things but the collapse of your marriage is a, a big part of this um, because what it what it does to you in ways that were unexpected, you were sort of blindsided. You not only mm -hmm. never saw him again and he didn't show up for meetings, um, he right. would uh, be on the phone or send representatives. He took you off his health insurance with no warning. He repossessed his car. There was a lot of what seemed to be cruelty and I'm still yeah. not quite certain why he got half of your savings. It didn't feel like um, I'm still a little confused about how divorce proceedings work, but mm, all of that 
<laughs> comes together for you to live with your dad for two years and your relationship with your dad is just incredible. And um, I'm sorry about his passing. You guys Thank had you. such an amazing relationship. It was so uh, wonderful to read about him being there for you throughout all these different ups and downs. But you're, you're living with your dad and you're finding um, what you end up finding out is situational depression and you actually start to plan your own death. Mm. Yeah. That was that was a really difficult year. This would have been 2014. And I think because of the unexpectedness of, of my husband leaving um, really spiraled me, I did not see it coming at all. And, um, and, and again, I'm, I'm a sensitive person too. So all of that combined was really truly just a, a rough place. And I think, you know, had I known at the time that there is a condition called situational depression, maybe I could have grasped onto that and been like, okay, I'm just going through a rough time and, and uh, it'll get easier, I need to seek some help. But that's not really what we had in terms of mental health care. Um, even, you know, as, as little as 10 years ago, you know, I think depression was always seen as like, oh, that's something that you're born with. And it's, clinical or chemical and uh you know a little cloud follows you around all day like the commercials suggest you know that was the only depression that i really ever known or heard of and i'm like well i don't have that i have this other thing and i don't know what it is and it won't go away and i think i need to exit to feel any sort of sense of um of peace and that's how yeah. bad it, it got and um and it really was a, you know, a decision that I had made. Um, and the only thing that kept me from, you know, from executing the plan, so to speak, because I did actually have a plan and everything was in place. And I was um, distracted on the morning that I chose to carry this plan out was August 11th, uh, 2014. And uh, before I went through with this plan, I did what a normal person would do during the day, kind of like you wake up and you look at your phone or you look at the news. And that's when we had learned that um, Robin Williams had passed. And it was that distraction that um, broke me th through that day and made me realize, you know what? Oh, my God, if this amazing individual has taken his life, um, maybe there's something. Maybe I need help. You know, like this isn't it isn't yeah. just me. Other people out there are hurting at this magnitude that we don't know about at all. And if he was hurting then and he had some something going on, then maybe that means that I have something going on, but maybe I can get help for it. And uh, yeah, so yeah. that was it. That's the nutshell. <laughs> um, and it was yeah. nowhere near as clear in my mind as I just articulated at the time. At the time, I was more in a stupor and I just went into my dad and was like, Dad, I think I need to get help. And that's, that's how that day went. And Robin Williams meant a lot to you because he was mm. an avid biker and you actually had reached out to him to narrate your documentary, Half the Road. Uh, he wasn't able to, but he sent a nice message wishing you well. And so his death wasn't just, um, it affected me greatly despite having no connection to him, but it was that as well, that this was a person who had been um, a part of this creating process for you. And at, at one point you had envisioned being uh, the voice of, of your story. Um, and I think distraction is so funny because in the book you say distraction sounds flippant, but truly mm -hmm. there are many people whose lives have been saved in the moment when they had planned something tragic because of a distraction. Yes. Positive, negative, something just got in the way yep. and it gave them another day to find the clear headedness they were looking for. And I love the way you talk about how one of the distractions for you is helping other people. Mm. You write in the book, um, 
something that just really hits for those who listen to my podcast regularly. I'm always talking about this stuff, but here's what you write. Um, Turns out the steady calmness and mental balance I felt in helping others wasn't some hippie skippy mumbo jumbo. Science was on my side. There was a direct impact of gratitude and giving on mental and physical health. At UCLA's research center, scientists discovered feelings of gratitude and giving can change the molecular structure of the brain. Furthermore, scientists discovered the brain isn't the only one in charge of sending out signals. In some situations, the heart sends signals to the brain. When the brain feels peace and happiness, the central nervous system jumps on the signal-sending bandwagon. Practicing gratitude and helping others enables the body become more at ease, less reactive, and less resistant. In contrast, the disordered rhythm of a stressed, erratic heart inhibits the ability to think clearly and make effective decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So we truly, Mm -hmm. through science, are starting to better understand the psychosomatic effects of things, the way our brains affect our nervous systems, affect our bodies and our health and our happiness. And um, that's so much of your story is how you end up turning your own aggravations or passions or angers or frustrations into much larger goals um, and and more people helped. And so I need you to brag for a minute here <laughs> about the impact around the world of your fight for a Tour de France, but also Half the Road, um, your foundation. Like, give me some, give me some of the top level ways that (laughs) what we read about you making happen in this book has ended up doing. Oh, that's so nice of you, Sarah. Okay. Well, I can, I can only brag if I use the term we, which is very accurate. Okay. I'll allow it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Otherwise I will totally nauseate your listeners if I'm like, Oh, I did this and that gross. Okay. So there is a very applicable we here. And that is that, um, Half the Road, the documentary film, that was a we project. I made that with a cinematographer. You know, it's not like I could just hold the camera and shoot stuff. You know, I needed someone there to do that part of the journey. And Half the Road also was ended up being crowdsourced and funded by, you know, hundreds of people from like 16 different countries, both men and women. So that film wasn't something I made, it's something we made. Um, and that that really also helped kind of vault women's cycling into um, in, into the, the media and into the knowledge. And same thing with the petition for Tour de France, which has now been going on eight years as a single day race. And this year it changes to an eight day stage race. That is all things that we fought for, you know, not just me. Um, Amazing. And then, yeah, and the last part being Homestretch Foundation, which, you know, was the next step after, um, you know, after the Tour de France and something that could help me focus on how can we, help the women in cycling who are still struggling? How can we get a base salary, which we did get, Um, you know, and it's a foundation where we- Yeah, and that's like, we've helped 80 athletes from 17 different countries. None of that would have happened without, again, another we. That's partnership investment and people who are like, hey, I wanna support this, you know? So um, I might be the one who maybe has an idea or, you know, like I did with the petition or home stretch, but it's the we factor that makes anything happen. I really love telling people this because um, I'm not the famous one. You know, I'm not the one who has the gold medal at the Olympics um, or has this, you know, seven or eight figure bank account. I don't have these things, but I had the plan and the the persistence. And then I aligned myself with people in those other categories who felt the same way. 
And that's the magic, you know? So if I can create change, like if somebody who is working in the lunch shift waitressing job in Tucson, trying to be a pro cyclist, look, if that chick can make change happen at the Tour de France, then <laughs> anybody can do anything. <laughs> and that's one of the things I love about you in this book is that you vacillate between like, I'm a badass. I just finished 34th in the world to like, I'm nobody. I could do so much despite being nobody. And it's the, it's the yeah. exact right attitude to push you forward and to inspire others. Um, you know, when you talk about the Homestretch Foundation, you partnered with a guy named Tom who reached out to you to help make sure that his uh, company was appealing uh, equitably to men and women and, and knew of your, your history and your work. And he ends up being this mass investor in Homestretch Foundation and your partner in creating this thing. And you just mentioned, you know, waitressing and who you were and, and your lack of funds and, and all the other stuff and what you were still able to accomplish. Tom said to you that part of the reason he wanted to invest in you and reach out to you, despite you not being the, the top of the race times or the most famous, was because you'd chosen to turn left and he had taken all rights. Now, <laughs> In the grand scheme of life, we usually commend the all rights because he was married with children and he was a multimillionaire and he had several companies and he was crushing it. And he looked to you and all the lefts you had taken, which was to prioritize things over salary, over comfort, over um, wealth and fame and the things that we prioritize so often. Um, and you had made such a difference in making those choices to turn left. It is much easier said than done. And throughout the book, you do a good job of reminding us um, that you were just getting by, sometimes almost not. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why, I, I admire it. I don't think I could do that. And I wonder why you feel you don't need or have been able to push for so long um, without feeling like it's time to take a right. Mm. You know, I, I think um, for all of those troublesome spots, there was always this, uh, this silver lining, like the hard stuff was really hard. But then when the tides shifted, and then you have someone like Tom, you know, say, hey, I see what you're doing, and it's worthwhile, and it's something I want to be part of. Like, those were real highlights for me that said, you know, maybe these crazy left turns were the right turn after all. And, um, there, there are definitely times, even now, still today, you know, where, um, where I do struggle. I'm like, am I on the right path? Am I doing the right thing? And I, I feel that even through those struggles that the journey is the still, is still the correct path for me, even though I took the left turn, it's still the right path. Uh, because of the reward at the end of the day of being like, you know what, I'm, I'm happy. I might not be the wealthiest or I might not have that gold medal, but I, I feel really happy. I'm surrounded by good people. We're making a difference, even if it's for a tiny, you know, fraction of the universe, you know, um, it's, it's working and it feels good. And I think that whole brain connection, I love that you read that passage because it's like, there is truth to that. You know, um, if we can give ourselves that, that little bit of joy that does rewire, recircuit our crazy yeah. brains, you know, you know, this, that song, like, don't worry, be happy. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like there's yeah, no, it's actual, legit. it's legit. Yeah. If we yeah. don't worry. All the hippy dippy <laughs> stuff we used to get told were, that we like, didn't know the science behind was actually backed by, by, by science. science. I know um, there's science happening. Yeah. <laughs> There's a moment in the book that I don't know if you even recognize this because mm -hmm. it just felt like a, a good pass it forward moment. But I think the key to so many of your left turns is they aren't you 
failing or getting in your own way and that's why you don't make a lot of money or don't have you know a fancy car it's not because you are failing it's because the choices that you make prioritize other things and also because in the end that's not what you're moved by and i think about you had this really fancy cola vita bike that you got when you were uh, brought to the team that you treasured mm -hmm. that you didn't need anymore and most people struggling to pay for their bills would sell it mm -hmm. because that's probably worth a lot of money doesn't seem like that even occurred to you. You gave it to a friend in remission uh, from cancer who was a avid cyclist and you thought she would use it and love it. And I think that's sort of representative of your approach throughout is at every turn, let me create a bunch of housing for people who want to run ride in this race that will be coming from other countries and won't be able to afford somewhere to stay. Let me work with a bunch of people to create some homes that are willing to take them in while they race. Let me do all these things that are helping other people, even in the moments when I'm at my weakest and I have the least. And that's why you end up finding a Tom or the mysterious benefactor who sent you a couple thousand dollars on different occasions and just said, <laughs> keep at it. I'm reading you from afar. Seems like shit's really, let me give you a couple thousand dollars and see if I can help. Um, yep. But it's, it's really moving. It's really, I mean, at the end of the book, you literally give us an activist's manual, the rules of activism, what you learned and how to make it work. And um, it doesn't come from someone where you shrug your shoulders or roll your eyes and think like, okay, mm -hmm. it's from someone who like really freaking did it and did it in such an admirable way. Um, and listen, I don't want to give away too much of the book because there's, like I said, brain injuries and divorce and awful death i mean it's a very dangerous sport there mm. there's there's a lot uh, and and suicide mm -hmm. and um you know in the book you sort of write about sometimes people who do these awful endurance sports are either racing toward or away from something and you have to figure out which it is and address it and it does feel like there's you know mental health or like uh, serious things that drive people to to pursue this stuff right. and that comes up a lot throughout the book too which is a fascinating read um before i let you go because we're out of time mm -hmm. i need you to do two things one i need you to tell everybody what they can do to help what you're doing if that's tweeting about writing about watching getting interested in the the women's tour de france mm -hmm. if it's other things what what can we do send give us a mission oh my gosh so great so great so definitely yes uh the women's tour de france is finally being moved up to an eight day stage race. We still need more days. We're not fully equal to men, but one of the things that we can do is tune into that, whether it's via live stream or TV from wherever you live, um, find it and turn it on. And that's super helpful. The other thing I know that would be um, would be great too. You know, if you want to learn more about Homestretch Foundation, or if you're interested in in finding Stand the book, um, you can head over to my website katherinebertine.com and that'll give you all the info to um, you know to be involved either with the writing stuff that I've got going on or with the foundation where we do fight for women's um, you know women's salary and pay gap uh, reduction in sport so that's there and then the third love thing it. I'd love you to do is to when you do get all stressed and worried know that uh, we can rewire our brains and we can get out of that stuff and if I can any one can people want you to stick around Thank if you're in you. if you're in those moments there's lots of people that want you to stick around mm -hmm. um 
Is this book still only self-published? Because it's really freaking good. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You know, it is. I had to find found my own publishing label because all the big publishers that my agent took the proposal to, they all said, oh, nobody's going to buy about women who stand up and fight for change. Nobody's going to buy a book about that. I mean... No, well, I hope that around the publicity <laughs> for the Women's Tour de France, maybe people decide to get invested in the story of how it came together because it's a, an incredible story and it's an incredible book and it deserves lots of eyeballs and attention. So oh, um, thank, thank you. you for writing it. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me on your show. And also thanks for being part of my journey during those early ESPNW years. I am so, so thankful we were connected. I mean, after reading this book, I'm thinking you were probably like, who is this little moron? Get your shit together, kid. Um, <laughs> I did not. I, just was, I was a late comer to the biz. And so I learned a lot of lessons along the way. Um, and uh, I can only imagine if, if uh, you were assigned to work with me, you were like, all right, we've got mountains to move. What are you doing? Are you, are you kidding? Doing? You were my favorite coworker. <laughs> you used your voice. Oh. You had a personality. Oh. You were like, let's do this. Let's try this. You were, you know, you were not going with the flow. You were helping make the flow. And I think that's awesome about you. And I think it's Thank great you. that you use your voice. You're my favorite. I don't remember, but that's definitely true. <laughs> I don't remember specifics, but I, I, I'm buying the story you're telling since I've never been anywhere and not used my voice and tried to change the flow. Yeah. <laughs> for good yeah. or bad. For good or bad. Well, I, think <laughs> I don't usually go with the flow. <laughs> right. And that's the good. That's what we need. You know, there are plenty of, um, of rivers for us all to create flow. And you've done that. And I think it's awesome. And, you know, you are also a woman who supported and stood by other women. I, I have this in the past tense. You are a woman who supports other women and stands with other women. And that's huge. And I'm sure you and I both have been in situations where we found people who aren't like that. So here's to the sisterhood of women supporting women. That is true. What was the term you made up? Sister blocker? Yeah. The sister blockers are those who yeah. don't help, yeah. you know. Doesn't have quite the same ring as blocker, but we'll workshop it. Yeah. We'll see if there's a, <laughs> there's a way to figure it out. So um, true. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. It was so great to talk to you. I hope lots of people read Stand, and I hope lots of people go watch Half the Road, and certainly let's bring some attention to the, to the awesome women who are going to be racing in the, the Tour de France. Let's do it. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. Watch the Tour de France. The women on Peacock at CNBC this week. Watch Catherine's doc, Half the Road. Go to CatherineBertine.com to learn more about the Homestretch Foundation. See if you can help or get involved read the book Stand. Like I said, I'm not super into cycling. Never have been. But this book is about activism, personal discovery, commitment to a cause, rebounding from adversity, personal tragedy, so much more. Um, I think it's a really important book for women activists and sports fans in particular. You could always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you got guest suggestions, questions, or more. You should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, follow and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Leave me a nice review. Maybe you'll end up on the pod. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.